0: Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining and show will start your mornings off on the, the right foot. Here's your host, street. Catherine Zox, good your night. social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Sometimes I stand between the sidewalk and the sky. And just
1: staring to the clouds as they pass by. You have to leave the ground to learn to fly.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Shamin Ajan, MS, LCSW, and ACT. We're going to find out what all of those Uh, Acronyms mean, but her new book is called Seeking Soulmate, Ditching the Dating Game and Find Real Connection. So it does seem like everyone and uh, let me just give you a short bio. She is a licensed clinical social worker who has been in private practice since 2004. Uh, Shamin has blogged extensively about mindful dating and developed a mindful dating model that she uses in her practice. She lives with her husband and children in Brooklyn, and Seeking Soulmate is her first book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Shamin. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Well, we're very close. You're in Brooklyn right now. I'm in uh, New York City, I'm in Tribeca, so we're not too oh, far we're away. We're neighbors. We are neighbors, right? <laughs> Just a couple stops on the subway. Okay, so this is your first book. That's exciting. Um, And it's covering a topic that yeah, that I know that a lot of I know my friends, my colleagues, they always get into this stuff. And dating is frustrating. It's and it even gets sometimes depressing after a while. So as you say, everyone is looking for love, but they don't really need seem to know how to do it in a way that doesn't create this kind of negative experience every time they try to Uh, go out on a date or establish some kind of a relationship so and you say that that's true in every stage of the dating process so okay so how first of all I guess the first question is um, you know you talk about being able to have a successful dating um, career or uh, but you can do that (laughs) by I I don't know if it's a career but you can use it or you could you can do it with um cognitive behavior therapy and meditation and if you can sort of embrace those two concepts and be able to use them you'll have a better experience so let's. that's begin. right that's one of the yep. things
3: that i really found to be helpful in my practice and you're exactly right it's this phenomenon you know everybody who is single you know is going to experience dating at some point most likely, and for a lot of people, it's really, really frustrating, and those negative thoughts come from those repeated negative experiences that they're having, and then these really fixed ideas are created, and they find that they are stuck. They're stuck feeling negative, um, having negative thoughts and having negative feelings about dating. They're stuck feeling like they aren't making any progress. They feel like they don't know what they're doing. And so, yeah, the, the mindfulness practice and the cognitive behavioral therapy, I've found, has been a really effective way of, of dealing with each one of those issues that um, come up from this, this, this universal experience that people are having.
2: And you say that these methods, and then I'm going to have you define each one of those methods, but um, are good for anybody, regardless of the age that you're dating or your socioeconomic background, cultural, religious, any of it, it that doesn't make a difference. This works for that all of us. That doesn't make a difference
3: at all. Yeah, the mindfulness and the cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT um, is helpful for everybody. Now, not everybody comes in with the same problems, but um, you can address the different problems by using those different treatment models or, or ways of approaching uh, the, the thoughts or the problems.
2: Right, so first, what's cognitive behavior, behavior therapy, CBT? What is it? Yeah, so
3: cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT um, is a treatment model and it's the most evidence-based treatment model, meaning that it's been uh, the most researched. So um, there's a lot of evidence that shows that CBT is effective and it's helpful. And in a nutshell, CBT is all about this uh, framework that the way you – Think affects the way you feel, the way you feel affects the way you behave, the way you behave affects the way you think, and vice versa. So they're all interconnected. And the idea is that you learn to become more aware of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and then you can intervene. Now, you can't change the way that you're feeling. You can't say, I'm not going to be angry anymore, I'm not going to feel sad, or I'm not going to feel jealous. But what you can do is change the way you're thinking about something or change what you're doing, and that can indirectly impact the way that you our feeling about something. Well, so give us an TVP. example.
2: Like, well, give us an example in your book for that you you know you illustrate in your book. Like, how does that really work in terms of a real dating situation? Create a scenario. Right. For us. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, if somebody has become so frustrated with dating that they have these really intense negative feelings, you might start to think that it's not worth it. And you might give up on dating. And so that might result in you deleting all of your apps off of your phone or blowing off people who might show you interest or even swearing off dating completely. Um, And it's because you have these really intense negative feelings. Maybe you feel uh, frustrated. Maybe you feel um, insecure. Maybe you feel um, worthless as a result of these experiences because nothing is panning out. And so what we can do is we can uh, take a look at the thoughts that you're having around it and really kind of test the validity validity of those thoughts, um, see if it's completely true, see if it is somewhat true, or see if it is, you know, not true at all. And if so, then we can come up with an alternate way of thinking about it. And that really gives you the uh, ability to... Uh, feel differently about the experience. One of the things that I find kind of across the board with people in general until they become aware of this is that you take a feeling and just because you feel it, you think it's true. You think the thought that goes along with it is true, but feelings aren't facts. Thoughts are not necessarily uh, facts, and so we have to learn how to investigate and become more aware, and so in this case, If you are thinking, oh, it's not worth it, or I'm not worth it, or nobody's going to like me, I'm never going to find somebody, we can really take a look at those thoughts and see how um, valid they are, see how true they are, see if there is any um, ability to kind of change the way that you're thinking. And then on the other side, we can also see what you're doing. So if you think that you're not worth it, maybe you're not putting in the effort when it comes to dating. Maybe you're not, you know, spending time uh, preparing for the date by taking care of yourself or, you know, putting on a thoughtful outfit or, or planning something special or even showing up for the date on time. And that is part of the reason why you're not having good experiences with your dating. So finding the thought, feelings and behaviors, and then figuring out how to intervene so you can change the way that you're experiencing uh, dating.
2: So, in other words, you can change that, well, I'm not really worth it, which should manifest itself in, like, well, I'm going to give, like, uh, I have a colleague friend of mine who who dates, gets her dates online, one of those dating mm-hmm. things online. Okay, fine. But it seems that yeah. almost nine out of ten of them, even the ones that she likes, let's say if she likes six out of ten, don't respond, they don't call back, or they don't, she doesn't have another date with them. And so what's the reason? And then she begins to feel like, I, I'm not worth it. And this isn't worth it. And why am I doing this in right. the first place? But keeps, you know, so then stops doing it for a while and then starts doing it again. Um, you're saying if she from was from like,
3: that same place with those yeah. same thoughts and same frustrations going into it. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways.
2: So, you just have to t- so you're changing your your feelings, you're changing your thoughts, and that changes your behavior and vice versa. So, if she went into this thinking, you know, I am worth it. I'm pretty good. I'm great. Uh, she w- would begin to do things differently, which would then probably get her more dates or somebody to call for the second time. Not that that never happens, but mm-hmm. it seems that when she's the most interested, it doesn't happen. So right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, exactly. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that's really, um, I find helpful with, with people who are having dating troubles. Yes, becoming aware of those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and figuring out a way uh, to see things in a more realistic, balanced way instead of um, being so driven by the negative thoughts and ideas um, that we have created as a result of these these experiences that we're having.
2: So what are the most common mistakes that people make when they're dating? Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> that's a well, long list, right?
3: There's a long list, um, and it's funny. It changes with um, you know the, the the what's happening in the world. Um, you know what what's going what the problems are today are not the same problems that there there were 20 years ago. And so the one that I see. The most often, um, even when I'm out with my husband and we're you know at a restaurant, and he, I, I'm nosy. Um, I'm an observer, <laughs> a human behavior specialist, so I kind of like to see what's going on around me sometimes. And you can see people who are on dates, and they are on their phones. They're on their smartphones. I find that this is a huge issue um, that people are experiencing today in the dating world. They bring their phones on the date, and instead of interacting with each other, they're on their phones, either texting or even if they're interacting, they're uh, interacting through their phone. So they're showing posts on uh, Instagram or Facebook. Um, this is not how you connect with somebody. You need to put your phone away. Even if it's on the table and it's buzzing, it becomes... Um, a distraction. Uh, so put your cell phones away and find a way to connect and talk and uh, learn about the person who's sitting across from you. So I think that's a huge one.
2: Uh, couples use it I'm as a security that. blanket. I think I see people as it mm-hmm. is a way of. I think what I observed, as you do, I like to observe people too. I'm a social worker, so mm-hmm. it's. I'm thinking, yeah. well, there's no way they're going to be able to connect if they're both on their cell phones, but they're both afraid to connect. I think another one is, and I don't. Maybe you can discuss this one. I listen also, especially in restaurants. And I, the other day, heard a couple. Obviously, it was their first date. And he didn't stop talking about himself, I mean, mm-hmm. for at least 10 minutes. And she's nodding and nodding, and he's talking and talking. And I thought, well, this is the end of this. This, He's not going – if he wants to go out with her again, uh, I don't see that as anything happening in the near future. Anyway – I don't then know you just if that's want to a- pull them aside
3: and say, excuse me, can I talk to you for a
2: second? <laughs> I have some advice, yeah. <laughs> I
3: know you might be nervous. I know yeah. that you, you know, really want this person to like you and that you're selling yourself. But, you know, you might want to ask a question or two. You might want to get to know the person sitting across from you instead of taking up all the time and the space. Yeah, I see that one yeah. happening also. And I think that, um, you know, men in particular Men and women do struggle with that, but I think men in particular um, tend to have more of a difficulty with that because they want to sell themselves. Um, They want the person that they're on the date with to really kind of see them as a viable option. And so they end up talking and talking and talking instead of showing the person that they're with that they're interested to get to know them as well.
2: What would you do if you're on the other side of it? Let's say you are. This person is talking and talking. Usually, it's a man because he's uncomfortable selling and wanting to sell himself. But mm-hmm. the the woman or another man, same sex or different sex, whatever it is, looks at this person and thinks, you know, I am attracted to him, and if he would just slow down and give me a chance to say something, uh, there might be some kind of connection, someplace we can go. What would do you know what I'm saying? So. Mm-hmm. What, what what is the? Is there I mean, something... that would be
3: great if if people could be that honest and open in um, on a first date. I think you know people are afraid to um, offend, um, and so yeah, may, you know one of the things that I have found um, has really been helpful for for my clients who are practicing CBT and are practicing mindfulness is kind of uh, uh, slowing down the date themselves. You know, you, that sounds really interesting what you're saying to me. And it made me think of this um, and kind of uh, becoming a little bit more of an expert or um, uh, having a little bit more finesse when it comes to engaging the other person in conversation. So if you do find that, you know, the person, you are interested in them and maybe there is something going on and you want to give them a little bit of a pass um, instead of, you um, being led by the first thought that comes into your mind, oh, this guy is pompous, oh, this guy is full of himself, oh, this guy doesn't care about me. Because you have that awareness of those thoughts, you can take a step back and you can observe and you can say, hmm, this person might be a little bit nervous. Let me help to guide this conversation a little bit. Let me uh, slow him down a little bit and share something about myself here.
2: How do we then put, how does mindfulness, fit into this picture now? You know, we were talking about, yeah, uh, yeah. so how do we fit that into this kind of, this scenario?
3: Yeah, so mindfulness and CBT marry really well together. Um, Mindfulness is all about being aware of what's happening in the present moment and doing so in a non-judgmental way. So that non-judgmental part is really important. A lot of times, people have awareness of maybe what's happening in the moment, but they then judge themselves. I'm so stupid for having that thought, or I'm such a jerk for um, you know having these uh, these bad feelings about myself or about this person. Um, and instead of doing that, when you can learn to be non-judgmental, you can then. Have the thought and feeling and then not be on automatic pilot and be led by the thought or the feeling. The nonjudgmental piece gives you the opportunity to observe the thought or the feeling and then decide what you want to do next. Um, one, you're on autopilot. The other, you're a little bit more in control. You have the ability to respond to a situation instead of reacting to a situation. And this is essential when, it be- when you're on a date because... Everything is fast-paced when you're on a date. You're going to have so many feelings and thoughts that um, are happening kind of rapidly, and you know it's one of those, like I said, universal experiences where uh, rejection is built in to the process. Right? You're not going to go on a date and, and and land every date. You're not going to have a successful relationship come out of every date that you go on. So. You go in with this feeling that, you know, you might be rejected or it might not work out, but does that have to be a bad thing, and does that have to be, you know, where you're, um, you, that you're being led from that place? And so, when you are mindful, when you are aware of what's happening in this present moment, instead of being stuck in the past or focused on the future or focused on you know some negative thoughts that you're having, then you give your chance to fully participate in the, the date. And that allows for you to really have a genuine connection with somebody.
2: That works. In that situation, I can say, for instance, I think it's easy you, you for the first time when you meet somebody to look at them and say, you know, why did he wear that shirt, or why? Mm-hmm. What you know, the, or why did he wear those pants? And and getting into just something as superficial as what somebody's wearing at the moment, and then focusing on mm-hmm. that. Um, be mm-hmm. mindful that you're doing this. Also works as you're talking in long term relationships too. I'm I'm thinking about my own relationship. If I would stop doing uh, the, the judgment, the judging, it, uh-huh. it would be very helpful to yeah. Let go of that, as you're saying, in this, using this this mindful um, approach and Mm -hmm. be aware of, of how that's helping to or causing you really to disconnect from the the person you want to be with. So
3: That's right, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I've had a lot yeah. of people in my practice and a lot of friends who have read the book or a lot of people who have read it because it's been recommended or it's kind of been sitting around once picked it up. And um, they've been in relationships, married or committed relationships, um, and they have been able to utilize a lot of these practices in their own relationship. You're exactly right. You know, we do this. We do this in all relationships and all interactions that we have. Um, So, you know, learning to be more mindful, learning to have more awareness, learning to be more non-judgmental really is um, the key to being able to have um, a healthy interaction with a person that you care about.
2: One of the things that you discussed are the misconceptions that people have about dating. What are some of those misconceptions?
3: Mm, So, yeah, there are... A lot of misconceptions people have about dating um, or dating myths, I like to call them. Um, And one of the ones that, um, you know, I find that people have um, often coming into my office is this concept that if you don't have a spark initially with the person that you're with, then it's not going to work. So it has to be kind of a, a fiery, blasting flame from the beginning, um, or the relationship's not going to work out, and that couldn't be be farther from the truth. A lot of times, a slow-burning flame is better than that fast-burning flame that's going to die out. Um, Relationships are based on more than just that physical attraction or that spark that's there. It's built on things that you have in common. It's built on mutual respect. It's built on, you know, interests and goals that you guys have together. And that flame can grow over time. So that's definitely, you know, a misconception that I'd like to challenge my, my clients and, you know, people in general um, to take a different look at.
2: I think also and the divorce rate is still pretty high 40 to 50% I guess so you have a lot of people dating over the age of 50 and mm-hmm. with uh, less hormones, less estrogen, less testosterone. Sometimes that mm-hmm. chemical stuff doesn't happen as quickly as it does when you're in your twenties, thirties, or forties. So uh, that's good advice for—I don't want to call them the aging population, but that sort of that mm-hmm. population of people who are are dating and and uh, trying to, you know, start a new relationship at that point in their age. I mean, at that point mm-hmm. in their Sort of midlife, um, and uh, I have a lot of friends in that in that situation. Well, I'm not just totally attracted to this 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 man or this woman. Well, you know, as you described it, get to know them first, and then very often that kind of that that spark does uh, get lit, and um, it's more it lasts longer.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think you know people sell themselves short often when they. Um, when they throw the, the, the whole date um, out when, and don't consider all the other things like how the person made you feel and if the person, you guys, you know, if he made you laugh or she made you laugh or if you guys you really kind of got along well. Um, those things are just as important as, you know, the, the intimate chemistry
2: Well, I assume this book is for both men and women. So, do men and women tend to make the same kinds of mistakes in dating? Well, I think
3: um, a lot of the same mistakes are made by men and women, but there are ones, you know, like we talked about earlier, that um, men make more than women and women make more than men, in my uh, observation. Like the men have a a tendency to kind of sell themselves um, or take up space when they're nervous because they really want the person sitting across from them to um, like them. I think on the other side, um, women um, a lot of times go into dating thinking that they can change the person who's sitting in front of them, if that makes sense to you, that, you know, this person kind of seems like a, a player and has a reputation for being a player, but if he really likes me, he can, I can change that or he he'll change for me. Um, I think that is something that is particular to women. Um, and then I think also one of the things that I see women dealing is expecting uh, that they're, the person who they're dating is going to make all the plans and woo you and pay for everything. And all of that's great. That's fine if, you know, that happens. Um, but they, there's an expectation there. And because of that, there's no graciousness or um, no appreciation for the effort that the person is putting into the date, and you know that's off-putting for somebody who, um, you know, is putting in the effort for you know a guy who or a woman who's putting in the effort for you. You know, be gracious, um, be uh, thankful, show appreciation for the time and the effort and the thoughtfulness that went into the to the experience.
2: Well is it still the same I mean that sort of sounds as you're describing it kind of like a, a 50s date or an early 60s date mm-hmm. but it, it's it, uh, you know he's going to take still going
3: on when I was dating in a 2000. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I wonder why. I mean because you usually I uh, would think in most cases women are 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 working and making choices and making decisions and doing all kinds of things making appointments on their own uh, even taking people out for lunch or for dinner or whatever and when they get into these dating situations, they sort of revert back to that, or women revert back to that in terms of their expectations. Mm-hmm. how does well, that I think work? Men do
3: too? I think men do yeah. too, because I think you know in in general, there's still kind of a societal idea of what those roles are in relationships. And I think you know a lot of times men feel like it's their responsibility to um, you know, pick up the bill and to plan things and to be the person who initiates. Now, I'm not saying that that's how it has to be. Um, but it, you know, it it more often is that way. Now, it's not all the time happening that way, and times are changing, and I really like to encourage my women not to, you know, sit back and wait for the cute guy to come over to them and uh, talk to them. If you're interested or you see someone who um, you're attracted to, you know, it's okay for you to go up to them and talk to them. It's okay for you also to ask someone out on a date, and if that happens, your expectation should not be that that person is paying for the date. So you, I want for people to expand the way that they're thinking about things, um, but in those cases where the man is paying for the date or, or the woman is paying for the date, I want for the person who is being paid for to be gracious and to be, understand, uh, to, to, to be aware that you know, they're putting in effort and to uh, show appreciation for that.
2: Well, we have a minute left, so let's. I want to mention the book again Seeking Soulmate Ditch the Dating Game and Find Real Connection. Shamin Ajan. Ajan, And Shamin, a website that we can go to to get more information about you and about your book
3: well thank you yeah my uh, website is my name dot com if you look up Shimin Ajan you will find everything that you need on on me because there is only one of me out there um, so I'm on Instagram Shimin Ajan psych I'm on Twitter at Shimin Ajan I'm on Facebook at Shimin Ajan and uh, speaking soulmate is available everywhere um, so I you know really hope that you know you guys go out there and check it out and, and enjoy it. And please feel free to reach out to me and send me a line if you have any thoughts or
2: questions. Great. So much. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
3: Thank you, Catherine, for having me. I appreciate it.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Pardeep Singh Kalika, author of The Gift of Our Wounds, a Sikh and a former white supremacist find forgiveness after hate. Pardeep Singh Kalika has become a powerful voice against hate crime and violence. He has helped found the organization Serve to Unite, which brings together people from different religions and cultural backgrounds. Uh, He has appeared on NBC, Fox, CNN, NPR, and Voices on Anti-Semitism, a podcast series from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Uh, He's married with four children. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Pardeep.
1: Thank you, Catherine. It's an honor to be on.
2: Well, uh, as we, I guess, as we all know, these are really tumultuous times for race relations in America. The president of the United States, is routinely accused of being a racist for both his words and his policies. We have white supremacists marching in the streets. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of DREAMers are being threatened with deportation. Uh, But given all this in these divisive times, two men, one of whom is you, Uh, from drastically different backgrounds have come together on a mission to stop hate, which is, of course, is what your book is about. So let's start with that. How did that happen? How did you do, how were you able to do this? I'm, you know, a Sikh and a former white supremacist. Uh, That doesn't seem to go together. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I've I've been told that uh, our relationship is sort of a, uh, a complicated, weird relationship, but, um, Hopefully we can make that a little bit more common uh, as people from different backgrounds can come together and uh, really have a joint purpose of healing some of the wounds uh, that you, you spoke about and talked about as far as like, them, these wounds kind of manifesting themselves now and in current day, and then really the, the President of the United States and, and other people uh, playing on that fear um, uh, to, to, you know, all the way into the presidency. Um, and and we, we, our story, when we came together, was, uh, you know, a, a, an unfortunate uh, event that happened on uh, August 5, 2012, uh, where my father and five others were murdered by uh, a white supremacist, an affiliated white supremacist, who was also ex-military um, and uh, belonged to the same organization that Arnold founded when he was a white supremacist. And uh, that's, that's kind of how Wolves came together for me, to, for me, trying to get an understanding of what drives uh, not only the ideology, but what drives white supremacists themselves to commit these uh, atrocities against people.
2: So how did you two actually get together? I mean, Arno is the white supremacist. Um, mm-hmm. You are a Sikh um, whose father has been killed or murdered. Uh, by a white supremacist. How did the first interaction? How did you actually get together initially?
1: Initially, we worked for the, uh, we worked for an organization, and he he was working for them before I was. Uh, and after the shooting happened, I was working with with them because I, I worked I worked with at risk youth in Milwaukee. And at that time, I was an educator working with at risk high school youth, and uh, a lot of the, vulnerba- uh, the vulnerability factors that exist with at risk youth getting involved in gang violence were some of the same risk factors and vulnerability factors that, um, you know, kids were getting involved in these white nationalists, sort of sovereign citizens, anti-government groups, what flavor, you know, have you. And so we were both working on our different uh, uh, sort of silos. And I, I saw Arnold doing a lot of work after the shooting, just trying to, you know, put a brave face on for the world. And uh, I wanted to get a deeper understanding of, of of, you know, the why so we can do the what. So I reached out to the organizer of what the organization is called Against Violent Extremism. It is a UK think tank uh, of of survivors and perpetrators of violence uh, who work together doing like reconciliation work throughout the world. And well, once I reached out to him, I told him, I said, "Hey, there's this guy in town. This is his name. Could I get a hold of him?" And uh, the organizer, you know, kind of kind of said, "Well, I can't give you his number, but I can give you his email address." And And it kinda went from there and we we, we emailed back and forth and we texted, we eventually talked, um, and decided to meet out and um sit down. And uh you know, kinda kinda like how dating works today's day and age. (laughs)
2: Exactly the same kind of, the same process is uh, it, I guess it is the same process so both of you have both of you are powerful voices against hate and crime and and violence so given you two getting together and I have to say apparently you are a former police officer as well as a teacher um, uh-huh. now the a trauma therapist but get, given the work that the, that you're doing and that the two of you are doing together how do we prevent some of these or are they preventable some of these mass shootings um, is, is it possible to prevent them, um, given the kind of—I'm repeating myself—but given the kind of work that you do to help p- those understand where the, all this hate and violence comes from, and that would help to prevent some of these, some of the mass shootings. Probably not all, but
1: yeah, that was a great question, and I think that we've been asked that question more and more as of, as the shootings uh, unfortunately become more commonplace and uh are happening you know typically in our schools there's definitely ways to prevent them and some of the work that me and arnold do um is definitely prevention work and and intervention work so it it takes the two right there prevention you know most people you can you can kind of prevent and it's got to look like a tiered system uh and the tiered system is you're going to catch 90 percent 95 percent you know the statistics being sort of uh vague but but most people you'll catch with prevention work and just building inclusion uh, within schools, corporations, in society. If, if you have buy-in by people, then, then, then the likelihood of the, those uh, atrocities happening uh, are, are lessened, are weakened. If you do not have buy-in, if somebody doesn't have stake in a school or a community um, or a corporation or culture or whatever it is, the, uh, the likelihood goes up. And, um, then you have the other approaches like intervention and what we got to start looking at is, um, what we got to start seeing is uh, who feels rejected and rejection being, it could be a real rejection or it could be, um, you know, a, a self sort of a victimization where, where they feel rejected, but might not really be rejected either way. If it's made up or if it's real, it's real to that person. And, and then, the, the harm comes to the object of fixation, which you know, a lot, for a lot of these guys, it's, it's typically boys or men, and, and uh, you know a lot of these go back to some object that they were fixated on, uh, sometimes a, a woman or a girl, and um, that, that, that not being reciprocated back to them. So they feel the sense of rejection, but instead of being able to take it out on that, that person, it becomes taken out on a whole bunch of people if there's an ideology also behind
2: that. Yeah, it's sort of, it's kind of like scapegoating or it's part of scapegoating. You talk specifically about toxic masculinity's connection to white supremacy. Um, this mm-hmm. kind of to- yeah, toxic masculinity, I guess, and, and that's what you've been describing, right? Uh, and that's why these men join these white supremacist groups. Uh, they actually, what? They feel less than and because they feel less than for whatever reason, they feel like they, have, they justify their what male power in order to and it all gets tied into this white supremacy uh, movement
1: yeah they feel i mean a lot of a lot of these boys are definitely compensating for um, the you know shame and and a lot of these mechanisms become like shame shame compensation mechanisms meaning that i don't feel like i'm strong enough i don't feel like i'm rich enough i don't feel like i'm, s- I'm smart enough and and, and some, I mean, it's, uh, there's a certain uh, element of biology that plays, you know, when a child is born, they're born with a certain type of personality, and then throughout life, they, they gain experiences. And so that, that in combination creates this, like, okay, this is the sense of, like, maybe even entitlement, and I should have something that somebody else has, and just not feeling like you're enough of it and compensating for that, for that shame through, you know, video games or... You know, ma- toxic masculinity, is exactly, I guess it's a great word to put on like a, whole bu- like a whole bunch of dynamics playing a role in creating this culture that this boy typically exists in.
2: So in other words, what you do, the, you give these, these, these boys, uh, often they are boys or young men, um, <laughs> giving them sort of a platform to talk about their hate, to understand where they're coming from, because most of the time, they don't have any, you know, they're not from privileged families. They don't, they're not well educated, so they haven't had that opportunity. And and so this is something that they that they do uh, with you and your group.
1: Yeah, I mean, we give we give these boys, um, you know, we understand. We 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 let them know that we understand where they're coming from without condoning it, without saying, okay, you know what? Because we understand. I think that's something that our society has. Uh, has a real problem with right now. It's just like we can. People think that they can vilify uh, a person out of out of believing the ideology that they believe. That's that's not even like. There's a difference between uh, you know vilifying a person and vilifying an ideology. So, but but people don't see it as that way. That we personalize it and then we're consumed by that hatred. And and then that person digs in and says, you know what? Because uh, because whoever is so consumed. And hating me rather than the ideology, it furthers my narrative to believe what I want to believe, that I'm rejected by society. And that's really a dangerous place to be.
2: One of the other things is also, and I think one of the topics uh, that uh, we can discuss is understanding Sikhism. I think like just in this country alone, I don't think that many or most people understand Sikhism or what that means to be a Sikh. They, they're, they're really ignorant, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. So let's talk about that. I, mean, I was in, in yeah. India a couple of years ago, and uh, one of the things that uh, w- that was something that I, I had no idea this went on, but um, I think it was in Delhi or New Delhi, um, the Sikhs, the, it's one of the big, biggest mosques I think is there, and uh-huh. they, throughout the whole country, feed 24/7 have food for anybody who wants it um, yeah three times a day it's the most well organized I have never seen anything like I don't know if you've been there or seen it or but it was this is it was uh, truly amazing and you don't have to prove that you're hungry or that you don't have enough money you just even may be a yeah. student traveling and everybody gets and, and it's all run by volunteers and uh, and and by the Sikh. It, it's um, yeah, yeah. No, so, th- I think, thank
1: you, Catherine. I, I, yeah. I love talking about Sikhism, and uh, you know, in context of even like, I, I think in America there is like there's a little known about Sikhism. It is one of the biggest religions in the world, and is growing. Um, a Sikh is, is simply a learner. As I say, like a. a, a and life is considered a lifelong journey of just learning and teaching uh, a good water, where you go to, like, eat uh, longer or learn. Uh, it's, a, it's considered a school where a teacher, So a uh, teacher exists, so that this, this religion is really based on learning and teaching, and that's what, honestly, like, August 5th rep- represented to us, is our responsibility to learn from what happened and to teach society, not just who we are, but who we are in context to other faiths and, and, and say, okay, you know what, because this happened at a, at a good one, we're gonna teach you and we're gonna be able to like get out in society much faster than we would have if, if this incident didn't happen. Um, and in a weird kind of way society kind of looks like that right now, where I think, uh, you know, 200 years ago, most immigrants would have been able to assimilate over time. But there's such a rejectionism that exists within our society right now because of the current narrative coming out of, you know, politicians and, and sympathizers and that that there's no ability to really assimilate over time and you gotta really let people know who you are, what what ideals you stand for right away and, and uh, you know, Sikhism um was up to that challenge because in Sikhism the first the first words are e god which means one one God or one creator or one source. And no sick should go on, and it basically said, that no sick should go on and read any other scripture if they don't fundamentally understand that first foundational stone, that we are all from the same source.
2: What about, and I want to go on to something else now, because I think this is really important, that I hadn't really seen it sort of um, written this way, but you're teaching these men that we're talking about, the ones who are filled with hate and violence, emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence. I think that's really important and showing them compassion, which is what you do. Um, And then you actually go on to label them that these, you know, oftentimes they are emotionally vulnerable because perhaps they are not that intelligent or not well educated. And that creates this kind of uh, emotional vulnerability they have uh, poor emotional regulation as you call it and uh, that mm-hmm. ties them close to violence so talk to us a little bit more about that because I think that's sort of at the heart of the matter for these the, the, some of these, these young men
1: yeah and I'll equate it to kind of um, a speedometer and the speedometer is going to go from 0 to 60 and 0 is total complete avoid, avoidance and say, I, I really am not gonna. I'm gonna suppress this. I'm. Gonna, I'm not gonna acknowledge that this is even there. And then 60 is complete. And now, uh, uh, rage or anger. And so zero to 60 is. And then uh, being at these two poles um, makes it so that like like people feel disconnected and dysfunctional, and dysregulated. It's either like the go to emotions, typically for men are avoidance or anger. And there's a plethora of emotions in between that and not being able to channel that, understand that, and be mindful that it's actually there um, creates this lack of, of, of emotional intelligence. If, if somebody is feeling despair, okay, what is that despair about? Let's not run from that because it's a bad feeling. Let's, like, like, let's understand what that's about. If you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling jealous, if you're feeling like this, it's all these feelings need to be listened to, instead of avoided or just feeling mad that they're that that you had those feelings.
2: What about okay? We don't we don't have that much time left, so I want to just make yeah. sure that we cover this topic of isolation isolation and intervention. And you say social isolation is often a precursor to extremism. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Explain to us further what that means in terms of the work you're doing.
1: Sure. Uh, social isolation meaning that, like, because you start to get get into an ideology, um, you you want to not have that. And Arnold talks about this, but like, basically, I want to have that house of cards knocked down. And so you're slowly building it up and only allowing in information that that uh, uh, reinforces what you already believe. And we, we typically, like, as practitioners, we can call that confirmation bias, but our our psyche, our subconscious works in a way of like it easily confirms what we already believe. It doesn't. It's harder to like challenge it, and, and so social isolation is something that we all kind of do it in a way. Uh, we do it because of the, of the neighborhoods that we live in. We do it because of the social circle that surrounds us, the politics that we believe in. But extremism goes goes like it goes further than that. Is to say, you know what? I am purposefully not allowing information that goes against what I already believe. And, and that this is exactly what Arnold did. Um, you know, when he was in the movement, he would get kids and recruit kids. And basically, once he recruited, he would groom those kids and only feed them information that would further the, the notion that whites were the superior race and that they had to wipe out all other races um, because they stood in the way of, of that.
2: Why do you think that works for men and not for women, generally speaking? I mean, just as we, yeah, as you said earlier, I mean, usually it's young men who uh, are involved in violence and hatred and white supremacy, but not women. Yeah, I, yeah.
1: I think, I think, I think, for men, they have a stronger, um, they have a stronger want for identity, purpose, and belonging, and and maybe something to do with the biology of just. Women, you know, seem to, be, they seem to be able to critically think at a younger age than men. Um, and this is, this is, you know, maturing at that point where you would get a vulnerable young man or young boy uh, and you could recruit them at 14 or 15. Um, you know, uh, typically, uh, you know, uh, a girl can, um, you know, by that time, I know my daughter, uh, like 12, 13, he's already kind of like developing critical thinking skills. And I think that has something to do with this is that critical thinking skills. Also, I think there's a lot to do with that shame component of just boys, um, feeling, uh, feeling so much so that they're not enough of something and being able to feed that sense of ego. Um, so, so I think girls just struggle with that less i don't i think the girls can still be recruited into and we we have a lot of friends who are who are girls uh women sorry women now and they uh, they were um recruited into islamist jihadist uh, violent extremist organizations or something else so they they are vulnerable to it they they're not you know exempt from from any of that but uh, you know there's something about the biology and the shame about men
2: yeah maybe it's just something also about the testosterone
1: yeah 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 uh, testosterone is definitely a, a factor of like you know testosterone
2: versus uh, estrogen yeah just kind of that biological chemical um that's maybe just that's a piece of it but it yeah and, like, and then and yeah. men
1: you know boys definitely tend to project uh, as you know, because you have a- you know a, a woman client um and as they're as you know as they're feeling trauma they will definitely like it will be directed inward was boys when they feel trauma and pain they direct it outward.
2: Yeah, I also think what women do when they experience trauma and pain, they direct it inward but they also usually have an outlet for their anger or their shame whether they're talking to their girlfriend or their mother or their sister or somebody and they seek out somebody to and and I don't think that young boys or men do that in the same way that women do which kind of takes that pressure cooker off, Um, and and I think that does start at a very young age.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point.
2: So what would you say would be the most difficult, I mean, how long have you been doing this for, like in terms of the time frame, you and Arno, how long have you been working together, the two of you?
1: Since uh, 2012, so about six years now.
2: So what's the most difficult situation the two of you have encountered? Or have you had situations where both of you start to disagree with one another and some of that old stuff comes it back in? And what do you do with that, or does it?
1: Uh, we do disagree with one another. Um, we challenge one another. Um, he's, a, he's got a different journey. I have a different journey. But it's definitely a very much a mutual respect and mutual growth. Um, so, so that that's definitely challenging. Where but I don't think any of that... I, you know, Arnold's Arnold's journey was that he wasn't. I mean, he, it's a weird one, and then you're gonna like you're gonna have to read the book, uh, "The Gift of Our Wounds." But but to understand like that racist tendencies, there's a whole a whole lot of layers that go around that. So I I never worry about him getting those old tendencies back. Um, our biggest challenge has definitely been see um, the, the people who are doing the work and align themselves as. Healing agents, um, and, and really saying, you know what? They're so, they're for social justice, and they're for the, the for the for for society to be better when when they haven't worked on themselves. And it seems like there's a lot of people out there who are working on making society better, but they themselves are not healed, and uh, it it looks dysfunctional.
2: So you can't be one of those. Well, you can be, but not a good idea to be one of those do-gooders who doesn't really have any self-awareness. You have to have self. It's like social workers. When if you're going to do counseling or you're going to do therapy, then you need to, I think, uh, have been have done it yourself uh, before you decide before you start treating other people. It's sort of the same thing. I think that's what you're saying. Um, let's. We have a couple minutes left, so tell us what websites we can go to so that we can connect with you and connect with the work that you're doing and also buy the book because there's lots more in this book too. Uh, lots more than what we've had the opportunity to talk about today, Seeking um, the Gift of Our Wounds, A Sick and a Former White Supremacist Find Forgiveness After Hate. And I've been talking to Pardeep Singh Kalita, but uh, you can buy the book, I assume, everywhere, bookstores everywhere, online. Yep. yep.
1: Any any wow. major bookstore, um, you can buy it online on Amazon. You can go to thegiftofourwounds.com. Um, if they want to get a hold of me, they can go to Party Singh Kalika on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can go to Arnold Michaelis on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and then and definitely like we're pretty accessible. Arnold just had an article uh, that came out where he worked with a former, or sorry, now he's a former white supremacist, but he worked with somebody getting out of the movement. And you know, the, the, honestly, like the, the book being out there helps us help other people who might be looking for guidance on how to get out of these movements.
2: So that's obviously very critical at this particular time. And let's serve to unite.org, too. I want to mention that okay. because you are the one who helped founded that organization, um, which I mentioned earlier, bringing together people from different religions and cultural backgrounds. Very important. You're doing really important work. Um Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
1: No, thank you for having me. You, you likewise you're doing important work so just keep it up. Keep the you know, keep the voices of reason uh, moving and, and I think uh, we're we're, we're going to get to a good place.
2: Yeah, I think so too. Very I, I totally agree. Keep up the good work and I will too. Uh, Pardeep Singh Kalika and I will mention the book again, The Gift of Our Wounds. A sick and a former white supremacist find forgiveness after hate. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show.